0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go. This is a really exciting episode. My guest for today is Brian Cuban. And Brian is the author of the book, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder. And I'm telling you, it is unbelievable what we talk about in this episode. The bottom line is, is that eating disorders body image, body distress, low self-esteem, whatever it is, nobody is immune to it. And we do not talk enough about the impact that all of this has on men. And so I just think there's so much good information in this episode. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really excited and really honored to introduce all of you to our guest today, Brian Cuban. Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: It is really quite an honor because... We do not speak enough about the male representation with eating disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, all the things that you were struggling with. And your book is so beautiful and so powerful. Brian, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Well, I am a uh, non-practicing lawyer. I live in Dallas, Texas. I, was, I am the middle of three brothers of three boys. Some people know my older brother, Mark, from the Mavs and Shark Tank. I have a younger brother, Jeff. We were born in Pittsburgh, PA. And uh, I went to University of Pittsburgh School of Law, Penn State undergrad. I am currently in long-term recovery from traditional bulimia, exercise bulimia, uh, cocaine addiction, and uh, alcohol use disorder, alcoholism. And I'm married. I've been married for uh, over five years and uh, living, living the life. Brian, again, your story, just
0: so everybody is aware, the book is called Shattered Image My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder. And this actually, correct me if I'm wrong, came out in 2013, correct? Correct.
1: Correct. That is the first book I wrote.
0: Yep. And then, of course, we are going to end. You have a new book coming out, but we'll talk about that towards the end. So, where do we even begin when it comes to men with eating disorders, the shame, the secrecy, the the seeds that get planted? Where do we start this conversation?
1: Well, I, for me, it all starts in childhood, as, I, as, as a lot of, uh, at least anecdotally, guys I talk to and women, uh, starts with childhood trauma. Uh, there was a lot of uh, I was bullied severely and I was even physically assaulted. I was a heavy kid uh, by, by some kids. Uh, there was some fat shaming at home. And I say that by my mom. And I say that with the proviso that I do not blame my mother for anything I went through. Uh, parents do not cause eating disorders. There's a difference between cause and correlation. And uh, I, and, and, and it starts there. And it starts with uh, kind of, I I like to analogize it to, being a little boy dragging a suitcase through life uh, over a gravel road attached to a tractor trailer tire with this little suitcase that you keep piling your shame into until and it gets bigger and bigger and bulges and finally, poof, it explodes, right? When it's better to open the suitcase on your own in a safe place.
0: By the way, I actually want to read one of those images that you're talking about, Brian, because, you're, I again, your book was just unbelievable. And this hurt my heart. You were talking, I think you were about 12 years old, and you were playing baseball, and you actually felt good about yourself playing baseball. And then you have this experience that is is unbelievable. You said, my baseball career ended not long after it began. It was not because of injury or lack of interest. The coach announced in front of the entire team during a practice that I would run faster if I pretended I was chasing a refrigerator to first base. It got a good laugh from my teammates, and the coach laughed too. I was humiliated. This was becoming a normal occurrence with schoolmates, but this time, the cause of my embarrassment was an adult. There's something about that that just... The, the public humiliation and shame and fat shaming with children, and I think it 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 almost, I, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this, Brian, but do you remember that time? And was that, again, one of those little things you packed into
1: that suitcase? It was, it was, and uh, I hadn't thought about that uh, for a long time until now. Uh, yeah, and, and you have to remember, too, that uh, we have a lot different, we have much different messaging around body image today than we did back in the 1970s when that happened uh, I'm not saying it doesn't happen today but I think it would be less likely for a baseball coach or a uh, any kind of coach in Little League to say something like that publicly because it would be all over the internet and there would be kind of an outcry right uh but uh, yeah I mean but that doesn't mean the thoughts aren't still there it doesn't mean people think differently it, it was it was uh It was one of those moments where uh, I I think back on it and it it came from someone that I was close to and someone that I uh, my father was good, good friends with. So that made it hurt even more. It wasn't a stranger.
0: I also and, and again, we'll get into the narrative, but I remember you talking in the book. You were very close with your brothers and your dad and your mom. And there was a lot of shame attached to just how you were feeling about yourself. It's almost like you didn't want to let anyone down or you didn't want anyone in your family knowing these thoughts you were having about yourself. And so what, how do we, how do we help? Now, granted, we are talking about, you know, girls, boys, binary, non-binary, like, so this is, this is gender neutral, except for right now, we're talking about your experience how do we help young men to actually be okay with using their voice one of the things i think i took and forgive me for imposing this thought is you have an incredible sensitivity to yourself and that's what i found really beautiful about your story your relationship with your brothers your relationship with your father you know all these things you have this beautiful sensitivity but you were it sounded like you were embarrassed of it how do we help young men work through that?
1: Well, for first at that point in time, I was not that close with my mother. Uh, there was a uh, you know, there was a back though, that, that was the point in time when there was a lot of fat shaming at home. And it's important to note that my mother was repeating cycles. She was fat shamed and had a difficult relationship with her mom. But uh I think we need to find uh it's very important to have safe spaces where we can talk about where males can talk about such things without fear of judgment, without fear of bullying. And I think that's why it's important for people who are ready to do so to speak out, right? So we can let uh, males know that uh, it is okay, that you are not alone. And an interest, an interesting uh, follow to that is when I finally started talking to my therapist, my psychiatrist, about my eating disorder, uh, and, and I was in my 40s. And even in my forties, when we had the internet and I I had this overwhelming feeling that I was the only person in the world, the only guy who was struggling with these eating disorders. And it was very, and therefore it was just so shameful to even tell my therapist who I didn't tell for a couple of years, I, I, you know, I, I would, I just didn't talk about the, I would talk about the drugs and the alcohol, but not the eating disorder. So I think it's important that people do speak out, and we create safe spaces. And there are a lot more, there are many more safe spaces today to go to than there were when I was struggling with it. Right? We didn't have the internet. Uh, I had no idea what an eating disorder was. So I think that's important because when we speak up, we give people, we give people who may be in the shadows in their bedrooms, uh, isolating, we give them permission to tell somebody
0: Exactly. I I think what I what I'd love for you to do is can you tell the narrative because you know you you were struggling you, you were struggling with bulimia I believe when you were 43. So like you said you didn't tell people for a long time, you also were dealing with steroids, you were dealing with with pretty much anything to help you feel some sense of relief from yourself, because your body dysmorphia was so severe. So, can you tell the listeners a narrative about about your story?
1: Sure. I mean, again, we have, we go back to the uh, we have to go back to the Pittsburgh, PA in the seventies. Uh, I, I was I'm the middle child, and I was classic middle child syndrome. Uh, I internalized anything negative said about me, my body or whatever, and kind of wore like a suit, like a skin tight suit. And I had the difficult relationship with my mother. Uh, and again, I stress, I do not blame her for anything. Uh, there was the fat shaming. My mother would come home from selling real estate. Uh, and I used to like to come home from school and eat, And you know, I would eat Chef Boyardee ravioli out of the can, come home and don't we didn't have a microwave. We just, I didn't want to put it in a pot. And she would come see me doing that and on occasion would say, Brian, if you keep eating like that, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, she was called these names by her mother, who I'm sure was called, you know, was fat shamed by by my great grandmother. Uh, I came from a uh, Eastern European Jewish family. We had kind of a dysfunctional relationship around food, uh, you know, the typical stereotypical Jewish grandmother, food, eat, eat, eat. And my mother had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her mother. It was, if you read uh, Shattered Image, you know it was very difficult, uh, and that ran downhill as well. And uh, and so she was repeating cycles, but not understanding that. As a queen, uh, I grew depressed, and uh, I began to eat, I began to eat to quell my depression to feel better. And I became a bigger Brian and a bigger Brian. And as so often happens, when kids change for what other kids perceive in the negative at school, it happened then and it happens now, although much in a much more insidious way with the internet. Uh, the bullying started, the fat shaming, the fat tawning, and this all culminated in what I call the day of the gold pants. My brother, Mark, had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. This was the era of Saturday Night Fever, for people who know that, and John Travolta. The album was huge, the movie had just come out, and my brother, was all into that. And he gave me this pair of pants because he bought some new ones. And uh, Mark wasn't a big guy, so they fit him fine. But I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats trying to get out, but I got them on, stretched them, And I wore them to school when the kids taunted me. And I'm walking home from school with these kids. And I didn't care because Mark gave me these pants. I love my brother. They were a symbol of his love. And I'm walking home from school, it's about a mile walk with these kids who were in my mind, they were kind of bullies, but they were also the popular kids, the kids who were getting their first date, their first kiss, holding hands with the girls in the locker area, walking down the hallway at the high, you know, at the school, the junior high, then the high school and uh, the prom teams, the prom queens and everything that I associated with love and acceptance. This is before the internet, right? My images of popularity, were the kids I saw every day. And they're taunting me and they're making fun of my pants. And I had developed the habit of being the sad clown, kind of self-deprecating an issue I tend to have today, although I channel it into uh, into positivity in my talks. But, uh, and I would just make fun of myself. Yeah, I know I'm so fat. And maybe they start pulling at the pants a mile from my house on a sidewalk on a busy street. Next thing I know, they're tearing at them and they physically assaulted me. And they ripped those pants off and tore them into shreds and threw them out in the busy street. My shiny gold bell bottom disco pants that my brother, who I loved dearly, had given me. And down on my fruit of the loom tidy whiteys, my Pittsburgh Pirates uh, t shirt, my tube socks, and my kids' tennis shoes, and the 70s kind of style went on like they had done the funniest thing ever high fiving each other, laughing. I went out in the street. Gathered them up and I covered up my tidy whities and I waddled home. And I got home and there was no one home. And I walked down in uh, our basement and these wooden stairs, we had these wooden stairs, and it was an it was a house built in the 70s, and the stairs creaked. And I felt like with every creak, the whole world knew my shame. My parents, my father who was at work, my mother. Uh, my brothers, and the these every little creek exploded onto the world. And I got down there and I took those shreds and I put them in a wastebasket. And uh and, and I just covered them up and hoping that would cover up my shame, that I would forget about it. But that's not how trauma works. That's not how shame works. And the shame remembers, trauma remembers, and trauma threads through life. And it was right around then that I remember kind of seeing my reflection in the mirror and seeing only this fat, ugly monster who would never be loved by his mother, who loved him dearly by any girl uh, that was going to be ridiculed by his brothers, which never would have happened if I told them. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of the body dysmorphia back decades before anyone was talking about it, where I would start to cycle through all of these destructive behaviors trying to change this monstrous reflection in the mirror that never changed, no matter how thin I got, no matter how muscular I got, no matter how many, you know, uh, alcohol, cocaine would change it for a few moments, but then it came back. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of that narrative of destructive behavior, self-destructive behavior. And I went on to Penn State University. My dad took me to Penn State and it was going to be a whole new brine. I was going to meet girls, so I was so happy to get away from the bullies but ironically, you grew up in the the area I grew up in Mount lebanon a suburb of Pittsburgh. A lot of them went right on with me to Penn State, so I saw some of these same kids and uh, I remember my father i was I was packing unpacking in my dorm room at Penn State, and it was this beautiful fall day in, in, in central central in northern Pennsylvania. I was at a branch campus. And the leaves were falling. It was crisp. And I'm unpacking. And I'm looking out in the parking lot of my dorm. And there are all these kids with their parents unpacking, getting acquainted. And I make eye contact with this curly brown haired girl. And I start sweating. And I imagine my entire life with this girl in about 10 seconds or 15 seconds. We're going to date. We're going to get married. We're going to have two and one half children. And she looks back at me and she looks at her friends and she looks back at me again, and it wasn't a smile, I realized, in this terrifying moment. It was a smirk. She puts her hands over her mouth and said, ugly, ugly. And like I thought everyone in the world heard those creaks in my basement, I thought everyone in the world heard that. And I am not the first person to have a nasty thing said to him by a girl or a guy, right? Uh, another guy may have called her ugly back, and another guy may have used an obscene gesture or whatever, but we respond the way we're genetically, socially, environmentally programmed to respond. I don't blame her either for anything I went through. And I was somebody who already felt ugly. So it was just one more thing. And again, I remember at that moment, we talk about bright line moments when we remember feelings, you remember feelings. And I felt like my entire life was out of control. I would always be ugly, fat pig, you know, fat so and how what did I have control over? How how could I get control of my life? Well, the only thing I had control over as a 17-going on 18-year-old boy was food. That's the only thing I could come up with at that time in my life. And it but I associated eating more with the bullying and my mother and the bullies and all of that. So I decided that my path to that curly brown haired girl's acceptance was in my mother's love respect from the bullies, acceptance from the bullies was to become thin. So in 1979, the fall of 1979, I began to restrict my food intake.
0: You know what, Brian, I'm going to interrupt for one second and I am so sorry. The reason why I'm I'm interrupting because what I'm feeling right now in my chest is a tightness. I can feel my eyes are heavy with shame. You realize those incidences that you're talking about, coupled with your personality trait and your history and things like that, this is how you're moving through the world, yet nobody knows that's going on in your mind. Nobody knows as you're walking through a college campus that not only were you pantsed, but again, I hope you don't mind, I keep going to this sensitivity. The fact that you were like, those are pants that my brother gave me. And I love my brother. And you just ripped those pants. And now I have to walk home in my underwear. The creaking of the stairs, the smiling at the girl, the imagining the two and a half children. That was great. I don't, people couldn't see me smirk. The two and a half children, the actual, like, this is starting over the excitement and like that. It got crushed. And this is the first day. So Keep going because this is what I'm talking about. That suitcase that you were dragging, Brian, just as you said, kept getting fuller and fuller and nobody knew because there's so much, there's shame about women having eating disorders. So, and then there's shame around men having eating disorders. Men are supposed to be strong. Men are, and, and by the way, I'm saying supposed to as sarcastically strong and let everything roll off their back and no big deal. That's not true.
1: I think it's important to note that gender roles have certainly shifted and stereotypes have shifted about what it means to be a male since in 1979 when I was going through this. But in 1979, that was definitely the gender role and the stereotype about how male should be. And 1979 was also before even uh when I began restricting my food take. And obviously I didn't have a diagnosis. Uh, so I don't know if it would have what I would have been diagnosed with as I began to. Uh, starve myself uh, to to lose weight, but uh, that it was four years before even singer Karen Carpenter passed away from complications related to anorexia. And uh, within that same year, I transitioned into binging and purging, with bulimia. And again, this was I believe bulimia it had only been a clinical diagnosis for a few years. And of not that I would know what it was, but it was an instinctive moment. I remember. I I think I talk about this in the book. And I don't want to get triggering, but uh, I went out with some people to this all night to this pancake place, all you can eat pancake place. And I ate. I came back and I felt so much shame because now I'd undone. I this is the first time I'd ever thought about this. Uh, I had undone everything that I had been doing by restricting. And the ba- the shame, it, this, this is literally the first time I've ever talked about this. I had done, undone all of that. And that caused the shame, the, the, the unbalancing. And so how could I redo that? Well, I had to expel what I did. Boom. That was how it became the behavior. And I had never, ta- I've never verbalized that before.
0: Isn't that interesting that that just sort of came to you in this moment? It did
1: it did I I had I had to uh, I had to restore balance. How can I restore balance by getting rid of it?
0: That's also why I I always think it's important when people are telling their stories. My like my narrative of my life has the facts haven't changed. But, my experience to them has changed dramatically as the years have gone on. I've created insight,
1: support, sense of self so well and we have to remember memories are only memories of memories, right? So you look back, you remember feelings, you remember trauma, but uh it's tough because our brain fills in facts to uh to to protect us but uh that i re- that i remember clearly that the feeling of restoring balance, and so uh I had. Become bulimic without knowing what it was. And uh, every time I binged and purged, uh, I felt a sense of peace. I felt a sense of, okay, balance has been restored. Now I have a chance at that curly brown haired girl again. Now I have a chance of acceptance again. And and you know what was funny? I think I talk about this in the book, and we don't have to go into this dramatically, but uh, it was during that same time when I became a bully uh tor- towards my freshman college roommate that's right that's right uh i bullied him without mercy because i decided that the route uh these kids bullied me they were popular uh my route to the my, to to acceptance from, my, from our other dorm roommates from all these people was to bully my uh college other college roommate college r- dorm roommate who was just like me kind of lonely uh, kind of shy. And uh, that all culminated when his brother uh, came to uh, campus during a spring break and threatened to beat the hell out of me if I didn't leave his brother alone. And I did. And I think in the first book, I apologized to, I do apologize to that kid. We called him Hawaiian Dan. And it's one of those things I regret and uh, I don't make excuses for, but it happened. It happened because I thought that was my way to acceptance. Moving on, the binging and purging every time I did gave me this feeling of acceptance and peace. But once that all end, this the shame swept into my gut, the shame of engaging in an act that I didn't understand, didn't have a name for. But I kind of instinctually knew guys just don't stick their finger down their throat. That's not, that's not the male stereotype, right? That's not what real men do. We don't do that. Uh, I didn't even have a sense that that's what women do. Uh, because I didn't understand eating disorders for men or women. And I also, I was engaging in obsessive compulsive behavior of uh, not just the binging and purging, but I was weighing myself obsessively at the campus infirmary. They didn't, they didn't know what to make of it. I remember catching a uh, glance at my chart and they made a note, he's coming in three times a day and weighing himself and we don't know what to make of this. This was in the early days of eating disorders. They didn't understand. So, uh, my and then I transitioned into uh, drinking. Uh, it started with uh, grain alcohol in my freshman year, and I turned old enough to drink. And I was uh, now drinking and binging and purging. And I also added exercise bulimia, uh, which is obsessed. For those who don't know, is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. And it was very interesting because I really trended towards isolation because. In my mind, uh nobody would have me, nobody liked me, so why not just be alone? Why not just be alone and Now I'm on the main campus of Penn State, fifty thousand people, and I remember I was so uh, I was projecting out with such strength, this loneliness and sense of isolation that every time there was a Penn State home football game where there would be a hundred thousand people at these stadiums, and I would see all these kids walking to the stadium, laughing, uh, you know, with their girlfriends, their friends. And it was the most miserable experience in my life watching these kids uh, go, go go to these games because I had, because I had no friends. And, I, and it just made me feel so alone and so empty to watch all these kids having fun. And I remember the one, a couple of times I went to the stadium of 100,000 people I felt I felt so alone and isolated in this sea of people that I swore I would never go to another game, and I didn't. And you know what I would do? I went out on these long runs that literally would last until from the time the game started, and I'd make sure I didn't come home till the game was over. And uh, it, it was it became a vicious cycle of uh, running 10 to 20 miles a day. Binging and purging, drinking, and uh, a lot of times just completely alone. Just completely alone. I would go out to the uh, bars at Penn State. I would get my alcohol bottle of alcohol. I would get drunk. I would uh, just so I could go into the bars to get drunker, and I would do that alone. And I would be so ashamed. I would leave the bar, go and buy whatever I bought, whether it was the pizza store or the M Ms or whatever. And I would uh, binge and purge and I would purge and uh, in an alley or in the uh, dorm bathroom or when i moved in uh, my apartment bathroom. And it was just this vicious cycle of survival and loneliness that uh, it was it was such a brutal, miserable time of of this cycle of Penn State. It's literally all, most of what I remember. I have very few memories of happy times.
0: That that's funny. I was gonna say something, but I'm gonna I'm gonna change my thought for a minute. You know, I I watched you do a talk at a college, and I forgive me, I can't remember when it was, um, or what school it was at. And I was amazed because I felt like you had said some of the same things I say all the time when I go to go to colleges and universities to talk, and that is, I wish I were sitting where you're sitting right now. I don't remember college. And it is 100% because I was in my eating disorder. I don't have friends. I don't have college memories. And I don't know if this was some of the reasons you were going on these runs during the football games. I also abused exercise. And one of the functions is so it made me feel like I had somewhere to go and something to do while the whole world was at a football game, I was like, oh, but I have to go to the gym. Like, it almost was my excuse because I couldn't make friends in, when I was in my eating disorder.
1: No, you're right. And I mean, you I I've literally have, I mean, I have very few memories from college of friendships. I, I don't have any memories of friendships. Uh, all I remember is running. Uh, I remember binging and purging. I remember drinking uh, alone, and it's weird how that works, right? And, you know, it was interesting, the, the exercise bulimia I turned into, okay, uh, I'll turn this into something where I can tell myself I'm, I'm actually doing something positive. I became a marathon runner, uh, and that that happened, in you know, during law school, and I began running competitively, uh, in my own mind, competitively, not that I was winning any trophies, but I started racing because it was a thing I could do alone. Uh, and tell myself I am actually accomplishing something.
0: I also want to point out, and forgive me if I'm imposing my own thoughts, but Brian, the extremes you went to, to quote unquote, find yourself between the eating disorder behaviors, marathon running, law school, it's like you just kept chasing and chasing an identity
1: or something. I was chasing self-love.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I was facing self-love and uh trying to pre- replace self-hatred with self-love. And uh, that's difficult to do through uh eating disorders and uh an addiction, drug addiction and alcohol addiction. Uh because it's never it's never permanent, right? Yeah. That's whatever it. you achieve.
0: Yeah. And you went to great lengths. Anabolic
1: steroids as well.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, can you bring a little bit of that in? Because there's another part in the book that breaks my heart, and I, I'll, I'll talk about it in a moment. But can you talk a little bit about the steroid abuse? Yeah, I had
1: I'd, I'd gotten, gotten into weightlifting. I would moved to Dallas in uh, 1986 after law school, I'd got, which I barely graduated from because it's tough when you're dealing with eating disorders and alcohol and all that. But I was able to make it. I was in a gym. And this guy uh, who uh, was the local steroid dealer and he was huge and he was popular. And then, you know, he always had girls around him. The guy was a uh, uh, professional wrestler and uh, he uh, turned me on to anabolic steroids and uh, boom. I mean, next thing I was uh, uh, just, I was getting him on the black market and I'd gotten huge and off and on. And back then, actually, if you had a prescription, when he first turned me on to him, uh, this is before they became a schedule one controlled substance or schedule two. So you could go to a doctor and get a prescription. And, uh, and I was, and then in the, in 2000, I believe it was, it was, I want to say it was 2000 uh, or 2001. I had uh, almost lost my leg from the use of anabolic steroids. I uh, had been out drinking and I used a uh, needle that I had already used and ended used, and we call them a dirty needle and injected, uh, Bacteria from my leg back into my leg. And I ended up with a massive staph infection that uh almost caused me to lose my leg. And which uh and, and so I went through that. But here's the thing: I got huge, but you know what I saw in the mirror? No matter how big I got, that monster, that little boy monster that was never going to be loved, uh, that who was not loved by anyone. And uh nothing changed what I saw in the mirror in my reflection. That didn't change it either.
0: I don't think people truly understand the, the I'm, I'm going to use the the term, the terror that people with body dysmorphia experience when they look at themselves in the mirror or in a reflection or just anything. Think about their sense of self in any, I mean, I don't, it's, it's really not talked about enough. And so it is it is such a powerful I I know people that have suffered from body dysmorphia disorder and have had similar histories to you with drug abuse alcohol abuse not wanting to leave if I could just if I could just get these love handles a little bit small it, and it never and it's
1: it's intense Brian and it never ends and uh I mean and, and it's a difficult disorder I mean it was it was a long time before I could even uh look in a mirror. I mean, because, I mean, it, it's kind of, it, a body dysmorphic disorder is kind of uh, being unable to look a- away from the train wreck, right? You look at yourself. And I remember it was a big issue in my, uh, in my second marriage, because and it, it, and, and it caused strain. Uh, my wife at that time thought I was narcissistic because I would look at the, I would constantly look at myself in the mirror and I would touch my chest. Uh, this, it's, I call it a tick. A body dysmorphic disorder tick, and I would just touch my chest and she thought it was narcissism when it was really I felt my chest was deformed, and I was touching it to ensure that it was okay uh, and so, but how do you explain that to your significant other, right? when you don't even know why you're doing it and uh things like that, all these little ticks that can cause stress in relationships when we don't even when the person uh suffering from it doesn't even understand it I mean it was. Years and years and years before I could even uh, go take a shower without looking and uh, look in the mirror, I would stare at the floor from the moment I walked into the bathroom to the moment I got out, and I would spend an hour in the shower, kind of uh, squeezing handles, twisting my head around to see if I could, you know, uh, my uh, like my eyeballs are calibrated, and uh, to see if I've lost uh, body fat. It's a brutal disorder. Yeah. There's also a high incident of suicide
0: attempts with people with body dysmorphia, especially teenagers. And I think you write about that in the book, that teens have a high rate of suicide for There's
1: a strong correlation with suicide, with eating disorders. And people often get confused and they think body dysmorphia is a body dysmorphic disorder is an eating disorder. It is not, but it has a very strong correlation with eating disorders. Very strong. Uh, It has a very strong correlation with steroid use. Very strong. And, uh, And it affects one to two percent of the population, male, believe it or not, men and women equally. Uh, So, but it's again, it's uh, it was a journey with my therapist figuring it all out.
0: There's also another part where you talk about, and and I apologize. I think I I don't know if it's because I'm also very close to my family or I'm Jewish or whatnot, but all your family relationships just really were very heartfelt for me. There's also a part that the steroid use. Had you go into fits of rage and there's a really, really sad moment where you're talking about being on a cruise with your dad, who you love and steroid abuse actually had you lash out at your father. And I did,
1: I did. And and, he started to cry.
0: Yeah. And he said, I'm sorry, I failed you.
1: I was so, and this was a point too where the, the steroids were just out of control. Uh, not that they're ever in control, right? It's bad. <laughs> but uh, I was, I really was so dysfunctional that I panicked. I had all, I brought the steroids with me. We, I was going on this cruise with my father, the cruise of a lifetime. Just my dad and I were going to cruise through Asia. And uh, I brought my steroids, we were going to meet in Los Angeles. I brought my steroids with me and injected, and I'm panicking because I wasn't going to be able to work out the way I wanted on the cruise ship so I found these gyms and I injected all of my steroids into me before we left just all of them emptied the, emptied the vials and I did I lashed out at my father because it was all elderly people now my age right the age I am <laughs> not quite that age but it was and uh he started to cry and uh it was uh I had bullied my dad and uh and uh I'll tell you I'm gonna start to cry. I uh, apologized when I go to his uh gravesite I do uh often apologize for that
0: yeah there there are things that i I reflect back on with my own experience that I put my parents and my brothers through and it it does it still brings tears to my eyes it is it is amazing how when somebody is is scared like i my eating disorder was like a survival kit like I say on my website, I was never afraid of dying from an eating disorder. I was afraid to live in the world without one. And so you bet I was going to do anything I could to protect that, even if it hurt my parents. Sure.
1: I had no concept of dying from an eating disorder while I was going through it, uh, or mortality rates. I was, uh, It was just what I did. I mean, it it was just what I did. It it was part of my life. Part of it was part of my identity. uh, You just do it, right? Uh, And uh, and again, this was a different time when uh, now there might be more people. There's more education. there's more uh, support out there. But uh, shame is shame, whether it's 1970 or or 2020. So uh, what, what what has changed now is it's more likely that somebody might speak up if they notice something. But uh, yeah, I had no concept of mortality.
0: Yeah. Can you bring us through, because I'm also imagining there's a lot of people out there that are saying, and how did you move through it? Because you are talking years of addiction, eating disorder. How did you move through all of this, Brian?
1: Well, it it had to start obviously, uh, it had to start with uh, getting sober. Uh, It's hard to... Recover from an eating disorder while I'm also doing blow and uh, drinking, right? So that all started in 12 step. Uh, and for people who don't know, the most well known 12 step is AA, but there are others. Uh, so that started there. And then the, uh, dealing with the little boy, right, was a lot of therapy that I'm still in today. Uh, there was CBT, there was uh, acceptance and commitment. And so there was a lot of different types of therapy to deal with my body image issues, to deal with the trauma. A lot of talk therapy, which I'm in today, uh still in today, uh, and talking to the little Brian. And uh because uh I'm a firm believer that healing the trauma is a prerequisite to healing the uh uh healing the adult Brian. Uh, healing the little boy or the little girl prerequisite to healing the adult. Now I'm not a therapist. That's just for me. That that, that that's just for me. But uh, I'm a big believer in uh adverse childhood experiences, ace. Uh, being a a huge role in in many different uh, uh, adult behaviors that might be dysfunctional. So I'm I'm still in therapy today. And uh, so I I have 14 and a half years, over 14 and a half years in long-term recovery. And, but uh, people, you know, people ask me what my greatest struggle is today. It's not the drugs. It's not the alcohol. It's my relationship with food and exercise.
0: Say more about that.
1: That is my greatest recovery struggle. I can take the drugs out. I can take the alcohol out. But what do I have to do, right? I have to eat.
0: Yeah. Do you feel comfortable saying how it's impacting you now? Or is it something that you're-
1: Sure. One thing acceptance and commitment therapy has taught me is that my mind, uh, even as it now in my going on 61, my mind works in a certain way. And I would be lying, you know, recovery means different things to different people. I've learned that it doesn't necessarily mean no thoughts, right? It doesn't, it's how I deal with those thoughts. So I can go and look at a bagel and my mind will just boom. Okay, that's this many calories. Okay, if I exercise and that still happens today. So what am I going to do with that thought? I accept that that thought happens. What am I going to do with that now? Well, am I going to go out and uh, do, uh, do the, this kind of dysfunctional level of exercise? No, no. So I have a tool chest today in how I deal with those thoughts. But those thoughts still come. They, they still come. Recovery doesn't mean just prancing through, you know, prancing through life with no thoughts about, you know, dysfunctional thoughts. That's not how humans work.
0: It's so interesting how we started the podcast talking about this, this this suitcase that you're dragging over gravel with you know the 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 t- the truck tire and all this stuff with these negative experiences and now here we are coming towards the end and the other image is the toolbox like it, those are those are two powerful images when you think about one is so hard to walk through the world with and the other is the toolbox where you keep going to it and and get it supporting yourself i agree with you
1: body image is such a amorphous kind of, you know, out there term. And I think it's important to note that eating disorder recovery, body dysmorphic disorder recovery, doesn't mean that I don't look in the mirror now and then and say that sucks, right? That's normative discontent of of society, of civilized society, or industrialized society at least. uh, Where I think there isn't anyone who doesn't look in the mirror now and then and, and say, man, okay. Bad hair day, you know, they, okay, yeah, my pants are a little tighter or whatever. But that's that's we all, that's how the body responds. That's how the mind works. But it's what I do with those thoughts that matters, right? Do I now do that and say, okay, I need to binge and purge? No. Do I now do that and say I need to go out and run 20 miles? No. Uh do I uh, have thoughts, okay, maybe I need to eat a little differently? Sure. Sure. That's uh that's how, just how my life works. But it's what we do with the thoughts, right? Over half the thoughts we have in any given day are negative anyways. <laughs> and uh, I am not my thoughts. And uh, we, we tell ourselves that, and I am enough. We tell ourselves that. The mind may not always agree, but uh, I make sure that that toolbox is always accessible so I don't trip over into uh, into these dysfunctional behaviors. And I think even now, as we go through a lot of, intense isolation and we're coming out of it, but uh, because of what we've gone through as a country and as a world uh, with the pandemic, it, it can be even easier where the line of normative discontent that the baseline of normative discontent may have dropped for a lot of people, right? Where it becomes a little easier to trip over into these behaviors. So I think it's even more important now that we give people, let people know that it's okay to have these thoughts. Let's find a safe place for those thoughts let's talk about them, right? You don't have to live within shame and silence and isolation.
0: I also want to point out one of the things that you did was surrender. And you surrendered to the love of your family and people that love you and almost said, okay, I'm going to take all this armor off. Very few of you are going to be able to see it, but I, I can't do it anymore. And that's, that's a pretty, it, you, I think you said it was becoming
1: honest. Sure. And, uh, and honesty can uh, mean different things too. As we, as we go through recovery. Uh, I mean, uh, my, my family knew nothing about my struggles with bulimia until I wrote my book. And so, uh, uh, rigorous honesty, as we say in uh 12 step recovery, you know, it, it's a, that's can be a journey as well in terms of, uh, self-image and body image and who we are. Uh, it was, I had been in therapy for a while before I told my therapist about it, right? Shame knows no hourly rate. And uh, how we deal with shame, it can be a journey as well.
0: What was it like for your family to read this, not knowing the intensity of your struggle?
1: I can tell you what I've been told uh, because I don't like to project thoughts into my family, right? Because we all live our own journey. I know they'd wish they had known. But you can't turn back the clock, and uh, you know they're very happy and supportive that I'm out of that and into recovery.
0: Yeah, it also sounds like you're really you're doing a lot of advocacy work. It sounds like you're doing a lot of talks, and you're, you know, I think you're 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 on on organization boards and things like that. So does that help you? I I know one of the things that has kept me recovered is working in the field.
1: Sure. I mean, before uh before I was uh my first advocacy was all eating disorder advocacy. I've worked with Nita, I've been on some Nita panels. I don't do that much with them anymore, but uh done Nita walks and uh just all kinds I've spoken at colleges. Uh I think it should get older, especially for me, and uh because I don't have, all I have is my experience. Uh people, new advocacy, new advocates, and I think this is great come up who are younger and resonate more with the college crowds and things like that. So I don't do as much of that unless I'm asked and, uh, but I'm always willing to, sh- I always, I share my story. I, uh, I started out speaking at colleges all over the country and, uh, and things like that. So, I and, and, and just speaking up and I still get emails from people who are men, males who are struggling with body dysmorphic disorder or eating disorders. And I work with them to try to find uh, resources because, uh, that's tough too. Uh, I mean, it's a privilege to have health insurance that has good eating disorder coverage. Health insurance in itself is a privilege, right? Yep. And uh, eating disorders affect so many different demographics differently. Uh, You know, we talk about addiction doesn't discriminate. And you can say eating disorders don't discriminate uh, based on But they do impact different demographics differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I think it's important that we are well represented in all the different demographics and males is one of them. And even within males, there are different subgroups, right? Within males of different uh, demographics, sexual identity demographics, you know, and go down the list. And so uh, we need more voices. We need more voices. And I'm always willing to be one of those voices. uh, But I think it's fallen on more of the uh, coming up and coming generation than, uh, than the, the, the old guy in recovery. (laughs) Well, don't, don't sell
0: yourself short. Your your message and your words are still very, very powerful. So Brian, we are just about coming to an end. I, I do want to say, I think it's really exciting. You also did just write another book that's coming out soon. And can you just tell the listeners about it? Because you are a phenomenal memoir writer, but this is a fiction. And so I just think it's fun.
1: They just came, um, at least the author's copies. Look at that. I don't know if you can see that. Nope, I can't see it. There we go. There we go. Called <gasps> well, The Ambulance Chaser. And it's a, it has a lot of me in it, the protagonist, but it's about a uh, Pittsburgh lawyer who was accused of the uh, a murder of a high school, uh, thir- high school classmate 30 years prior after her remains are discovered. And he is arrested and charged with the crime. And he becomes a fugitive from justice to uh, find the one person who can both prove his innocence and save the life of his uh, son who's been kidnapped. So that is releasing December seventh. I'm very excited.
0: Well, I am very excited because I, like I said, your your writing is is wonderful, and so I I loved reading your your book about your experience, and I'm excited to read a fiction book that you write. Me
1: I just too. Think Me too. I am excited. It's it's, it's uh, I don't know how memoir writing translates, so we'll see.
0: Yeah. Okay, Brian. Before we end, is there anything I didn't ask you, or anything you want to share with listeners before we before we end?
1: You know, it, it's important to use our voices to support others who are struggling. So, uh, if you think someone is struggling with, with an eating disorder, you don't know that doesn't mean you have to. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to shame anyone, accuse anyone. But it's okay to ask people how they're doing, and it's okay to let people know that they're you're there for them if you want to talk and parents it's okay to not know what to do it really is but i think it is incumbent to reach out to people who do know what to do if you think if you think something's going on and this isn't 1979 there are a lot of people and a lot of resources on what to do
0: and you think that you have nothing to say come on <laughs> Listen to how you just ended this. It was absolutely beautiful. Again, I really, really want to thank you for being on the, on the podcast. It's, it's an important story and I'm going to encourage everyone to get the book. So thank you again.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at, at recoverybitespod on Instagram if you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request please visit karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer Jen Galvin it is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes all right everyone see you next week for another recovery bite